Thanks, Laura. And um, thanks, everybody. This is um, kind of my first full, full Sunday back after being isolated for a while. And for Amanda, she was the last one in our family to get COVID. All six of us have ended up with it. And that means that she was locked away for two weeks before she caught the thing. So it's, uh, it's actually wonderful to see everyone face to face. And for those who have been praying for us as a family and, and you know, providing meals and things like that, we are so appreciative of that. Um, today's passage is a story of two distinct parts. One's positive and the other one's negative. One's a picture of celebration, one of hostility. One is about salvation and hope, and one is about judgment and death. And both sets of contrasting realities hinge on how people respond to the arrival of the same person. The thing is, and this is where today's passage is relevant for everyone here, whether you're here in the place or whether you're watching online, is that they still matter now. They still hinge, those realities for us hinge on how we respond to that same person. Now, we're going to have a a look at discipleship. We're going to have a look at the fulfillment of some very important prophecies. We're going to encounter an obscure incident with a fig tree. And we're going to reflect on the function of the temple. But even as we do all of that this morning, I want us to have in the back of our minds all the way through the same question. Am I ready for the arrival of Jesus? That's the key question. Now, to begin with, let me um, get us up to speed on where we are in Mark's Gospel. The first half of the book is really asking the question, as Jesus turns up, who is this man? And so throughout his ministry in Galilee, he's preaching the kingdom, he's performing signs that point to his identity, and it culminates in Peter's declaration at the end of chapter 8 that you are the Messiah. Peter finally works it out. Now, since then, Jesus has been on a journey south from Galilee, which is in the north of the country, to Jerusalem in the south. And along the way, he foretells his betrayal, his death, his resurrection, and teaches those that are with him what it actually means to follow after him as the Messiah and be his disciple. Well, today, as Jesus finally arrives at Jerusalem, the lesson on discipleship comes to an end, And the great work that he has come to do takes centre stage. And it begins with the last healing miracle in the Gospel. A blind man who proves to have the clearest vision of all. So please make sure you've got your Bibles open. Mark 10.46 is where we're starting. Let me read it to you. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. So our passage begins in Jericho. Now, when we're talking about travelling up to Jerusalem, that description is no more apt than from the road up from Jericho. Now, I've got a picture on the screen there for you to have a look at. Jericho lies near the Dead Sea, which you might know is the lowest place below sea level on earth. It's 250 metres below sea level and Jerusalem is 700 metres above sea level and the road is only 25 kilometres long. So it's a really steep journey and it's done on foot but it's also the home stretch 
of Jesus' great journey. A large crowd is now following Jesus and already a sense of anticipation is starting to build around him as he goes on that road up into Jerusalem. But what I want to say is more important than the crowd is the description of the man who's sitting beside the road as they leave Jericho. Did you know that this incident here is the only occasion in either Mark, Matthew or Luke's Gospels where we're told the name of a person that Jesus heals? This is it, the only time. Now, that in itself suggests that this encounter is particularly significant. Now, word order, from the original language to translating it into English, is not always super important, but it does have some significance here. See, in the original it reads, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, was seated along the way. The first thing that Mark tells us about this man is who his father is. And the name Timaeus comes from the Greek word that means honour. The blind man, this blind man begging on the margins of the city while everyone else just walks on the road past him, a social nobody, his name means the son of honour. Now, is that sadly ironic? Or is it deeply profound? Well, let's just see how appropriate that name is. What does Bartimaeus do? Verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Bartimaeus may be blind, but he is certainly not deaf. He picks up that the crowd is following a guy called Jesus and that is a name that he recognises. So clearly, even though he lives in Jericho, way to the south, he knows Jesus by reputation. He's heard of what Jesus could do. But it is more than that. You see, Bartimaeus has done what so many in the Gospel up and of Mark up until now had failed to do, and that is, he's a blind beggar sitting by the road in Jericho, but he's understood who Jesus actually is, like no one else yet has. Now again, the word order is different. It's not Jesus, son of David. He begins to shout, son of David, Jesus. The son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, says, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And this is the first time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus has been called this. And there can be no mistaking what Bartimaeus means. It's not just Jesus of Nazareth, that guy walking past. It's the Son of David walking past. It's God's promised Messiah. And this beggar is begging for the Messiah's mercy. Well, just like they did when people brought little children to Jesus, many of his followers wanted Bartimaeus just to shut up and stay silent and be out of the way. He's the riffraff. He's got, Jesus has got better things to do than be harassed by beggars. But good old Bartimaeus, he just ignores them. In fact, He completely ignores them. He repeats his cry and he does it even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then the great procession stops. Jesus stopped and said, call him. 
And so they call to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. You see, far from being intimidated, you can hardly get a picture of greater eagerness, can you? I mean, he throws his cloak aside. Do you think as a beggar, he's got 50 of these hanging in a closet? But he throws it beside the road and he gets there as quick as he can and he leaps up, we're told, he jumps up to Jesus. And then Jesus, quite deliberately, I think, gives us a little bit of deja vu. Now, this is a bit where I'm going to call you to remember something we heard last week. He'd said these same words in verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And those are the same words that he says back in chapter 10, verse 36 to James and John when they wanted Jesus to do something for him. Now, remember, they wanted Jesus to give them the places of honour at his right and left hand. Well, Jesus asked exactly the same question of Bartimaeus as he did of them, but Bartimaeus' answer is far more impressive and humble. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Now, Jesus has been called Rabbi before. For those who don't know, Rabbi means teacher. But this time, Bartimaeus uses Rabuni. And this is a far more reverent form of the word that is almost never used to address people. It was frequently used to address God in prayer. This blind man, this son of honour, has in a few short moments honoured Jesus more than anyone yet had honoured him. He has courageously acknowledged Jesus Messiah in front of all, even those that would call on him to be silent about it and shout him down. He's humbly begged Jesus, not for glory, but for mercy. He's come to Jesus in prayerful requests and profound trust that Jesus can do the great impossible thing that he asks of him. And his faith is rewarded. Verse 52, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight. Now, again, earlier in this chapter, we've got to remember this is not coming in an island. Chapter 10, there's more to it beforehand. A rich, law-abiding young man goes away from Jesus sad. you remember that? Because the disciples then go, wow, well then who can be saved? Well, the word used for healed here is also the word for saved. The rich young man's law-keeping didn't save him. But the humble faith that the blind beggar Bartimaeus had in Jesus did. And what does Bartimaeus do next? Does he go away and live his best life now that uh, he can catch up on all of the sightseeing that he's missed for so long? No. No. He follows Jesus along the road. That's what he does with his newfound sight. See, there's no surprise why Bartimaeus gets singled out by name. You know, the New Testament scholar James Edwards writes that the healing of Bartimaeus is surely the sum and centre of all that Mark desires to convey about faith and discipleship. Well, as I said earlier, the only way to Jerusalem from Jericho is up. 
and it's a windy road through the desolate hill country of Judea. Now, coming from Jericho, the site of the city of Jerusalem is shielded from view, even today with the modern highway, um, by the surrounding hills um, until you finally get to the crest of the Mount of Olives, which is 300 metres, oh, sorry, 300 feet higher than the hill which Jerusalem is on. So you can see how on your way up, all you see is that, and it's only when you get to the top that you actually see Jerusalem. Now, Bethphage is at the top of the Mount of Olives and Bethany is just on the eastern shoulder of the Mount of Olives, a couple of kilometres away from the city. This is when Jesus sees to some preparations that we were reading about earlier. He sends two disciples to go get a colt for him to ride on. But what I want to ask us about this is, what do you make of all the detail that we get? Mark's not that long a book. But we get six whole verses on what kind of animal, where to find it, and what to say when taking it, and then it goes and replays the events as the disciples encounter exactly what all of that happened. Now, now why tell us that much? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the events that are about to happen are all done with Jesus' foreknowledge and his sovereignty. He is not being swept up by the hype of the crowd in all of this. He is not an unwitting victim of the misunderstandings or the schemes of other people. This is all very deliberate and planned. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem, in other words, he is very specific. It will be on an unridden colt, probably of a donkey. It's not a mistake. It's his express intention. Why? Because that is what the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem on when he comes, according to Zechariah chapter 9. Have a look at the verses that Jesus is referencing when doing this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And in just in case someone goes, hey, why are you taking that person's colt? The answer is to be given, Jesus says, the Lord needs it. In other words, this animal is being commandeered, requisitioned by the Lord who as the king has the right to do that. Well, this is the moment. This is the moment. This is what what the disciples have been waiting for. And so they're ready for it for him to ride. They take their cloaks and they make a makeshift saddle on it. And the preparations that Jesus has been making with his disciples and getting the donkey and waiting for it to all come along, that's being watched because he's got a crowd around him. It's all being seen. It's all being heard. They've followed him all the way from Jericho. And all along there's been this air of anticipation and this is what he chooses to do. Well now all of the signals that Jesus want to be picked up are being picked up. And the hype is now building. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem like the Messiah is meant to. 
And watch what they do. And can I just say, this is hardly the welcome that they might have given to any pilgrim on their way to Jerusalem, as some say this is. Picture this, verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields, right? So people are throwing their cloaks onto the dusty road for the animal that Jesus is sitting on to walk on. Some had taken time to cut palm branches and lay them out to cushion the steps along the way to make it a comfortable and pretty road, not a dirty, poo-filled road with animal dung all over the place. A nice one. You know, you've, this is rolling out the red carpet. This is exactly what this is the equivalent of, but it's on steroids. Notice that Jesus is not joining in their procession, they're making a procession for him. What kind of a person do you do that for? What makes people do that? And what kind of person has people running ahead of them and chanting behind them, calling for the blessings of God and for everyone else to do the same and cry it out? You can't mistake who they think this is. This is. And this is what they cried out. Hosanna. That's a cry of salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus heads down that, that side of the Mount of Olives and up the other side to where Jerusalem stands with the temple looming over it. Now they're quoting from Psalm 118. But I want you to have, a, before I read you the bits that Psalm 18 actually quotes, I want you to see the verses leading up to that. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us with boughs in hand, joining the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Right? It's a psalm of celebration, of salvation. A psalm calling on God's blessing that is well worth singing about with boughs in your hand, waving them around like posters and things. You're part of this festal procession. You're filled with joy. And look what else they're chanting. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. There's so much anticipation, so much hope, so much expectation. But what will happen when the son of David gets into the city of David? When the son of God comes to the house of God? It's almost as if as soon as Jesus gets through those city gates, the scene changes. As abruptly as if you're in one of those movies, you know, where the hero seems to walk through a waterfall into a complete different world behind it. The red carpet is gone. No celebration inside. No feasting for the arriving king. No crowds eagerly welcoming him home. 
Mark tells of Jesus' arrival at the temple courts with an ominous sparsity. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany and with the twelve. What? (laughs) That's it? That's how this procession ends? Yep, that's it. Just think about what's happened in truth. The Messiah, right? The Messiah, the descendant of David, the eternal king of God's people has entered his city. More than that, the son of God has walked into God's temple. But if you were a bird and you were perched on the wall of the temple courts late that afternoon and you just sort of looked down at the scene before you, you would have seen a single man walking through the gates, maybe with a few people hanging around him, and then get there and then just stand there and look around for a while watching what's going on and then silently walking out again. Okay, when I think of this, I can't help but think of that scene from the original Terminator movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger walks into the police station, looks around and quietly says to the policeman at the desk those most famous words, I'll be back. You know, one of the big themes in Mark's gospel has been that of insiders and outsiders. Those who are seemingly on the outside, like your beggars at the end of Jericho, right, end up inside the kingdom. But those who the rest of society would consider insiders prove in truth to be outsiders of the kingdom when it comes to God. Well, the kings now arrived home to the temple in Jerusalem, the most inside place of the insider's world. And you cannot help but get the sense that he did not like what he saw. He'll be back. Now, another characteristic of Mark's writing is the way that he sometimes sandwiches incidents. You might have heard us talk about this last year. Like two pieces of bread with a layer in the middle, right? One incident is told in two parts, but those two parts are separated and something else is put in, in, in by a different event in the middle. But like a sandwich, the whole thing is meant to be eaten together if you want to understand it. Well, outside parts of this particular sandwich have to do with a certain fig tree. And truth be told, it is one of the stranger things that Jesus does during his ministry. And it's all the more memorable because of it. Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, He found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Well, so far, so unsurprising, right? A fig tree didn't have figs on it outside of fig season. All right, let's move on, shall we? No, not so quick. And some horticulture might help here. Now, I have a fig tree in a pot in our courtyard. Now, I would have shown you a picture of it, but it is in such bad condition that I think I would offend all plant lovers Um, So I've put someone else's picture up here. Now, the thing about figs is that even out of fig plants, when, when they're even out of season, when they're all leafy, 
they normally have what Jews called pagim. Now that is unripened figats kind of thing that are sitting there on the branches. And they sit there for a few months before they get darker and become figs. Now pagim are still edible, but they're not considered proper figs. They had a different word for that. So Jesus wasn't being foolish going up to a fig tree, even out of season, in the hope that he might find something that he might be able to eat on it. Well, this tree looked healthy. It looked promising from the outside, but it didn't even have these. It had nothing. It had nothing but leaves. Now, I don't know what you're like in the mornings, but sometimes Amanda says to me, I'm not talking to you until you've had your coffee. Well, Jesus seems to take hangry up a few notches. Look at verse 14. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, let me tell you, this is a full-on curse. He literally says, no longer, even into eternity, may no one eat fruit from you. And of course, the disciples heard it. You can imagine that the next few minutes as they're walking up there involved plenty of casual conversation about the pleasantness of the weather. On the face of it, it seems like some kind of irrational and unreasonable temper tantrum. It seems so unlike Jesus, doesn't it? Why get so fiercely angry at a tree of all things? Unless, of course, it wasn't really about the tree. You see, Jesus goes straight back to the temple and knows the king wasn't happy with what he'd seen the day before and he decides to make his displeasure known. Look at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He takes all of that wrath that he had poured out on that fig tree and he takes it into the temple. Let me help you understand what's going on here. So first of all, what are the merchants doing there? Pilgrims who had come to temple, the temple from far and wide could hardly be expected to travel hundreds of kilometres, as many of them would have done, with the animals that they needed to sacrifice. And so a number of merchants stocked the right animals and pilgrims could purchase them when they arrived rather than bring them all the way to Jerusalem. And there was a special temple tax that needed to be paid once a year, but it had to be paid with a special type of coin. So money changers were around to convert any money that the pilgrims might have brought into that type of coin that was needed for the temple tax. Now, no doubt some of these merchants were dodgy, but the existence of such a trade wasn't a problem. Generally speaking, they provided a necessary service. But here's what the issue is. They used to do all of that and ply their trade on the Mount of Olives before the pilgrims ever entered the city. But as recently as 30 AD, we're not talking about very long at all before this incident, the high priest Caiaphas 
controversially moved them all into the temple courtyard itself, despite the objections of other Jewish leaders. And why do it? Because it was more convenient for the traders to be in the temple. It was convenient for the pilgrims to have them there. But it made the whole exercise of worship expedient and token. But worse still, it added noise and busyness in a place where people should be able to go to turn their thoughts and hearts to God in prayer and listen uninterrupted to his word being taught to them to be able to sing along with all of the music and the singing of psalms that went on instead of listening to the bleeding of animals. And the worst bit is that it showed nothing but contempt for the Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were only allowed in that part of the temple. And that meant that they were really not able to worship there. Meanwhile, the priests can charge the traders rent. So once more the world and money crowds in and pushes God out. You see, it wasn't what they were that that was a problem, it was where they were. And Jesus has a massive problem with that. Having driven the merchants out, and and I doubt that what Mark describes here is going to be a five-minute exercise, Jesus had drawn a crowd around him. And he has a fierce word to say, verse 17. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? You've made it a den of robbers. So Jesus in the first part quotes from Isaiah 56. Let me encourage you to read that when you get home. Because there God shows his wonderful vision for his temple. There was a place where the broken and where the foreigners and all of those who were thought to be on the outside and barred away from God might actually come inside and find in that place, in his temple, a place of fellowship and peace and wholeness and loving worship, a place to call on God in prayer and be heard by him. That's Isaiah 56. But instead what Jesus sees before him is corrupted. That if a Gentile sought God there, all he or she would find is noise, greed and exploitation. A place of taking, not a place of blessing. Not a refuge for the nations, a cave for thieves. See, instead of the vision of Isaiah 56, it's more the picture of the temple that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 7 and that you might remember what we looked at about what was going on in Jeremiah's time when we looked at it last year. And that is what Jesus quotes now. Listen to these chilling words. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And he says, go check out what I did to the other place when they did the same things. Don't think you're safe. See, in the rest of that chapter, God promises through Jeremiah that he will surely destroy that temple and accept no prayers on its behalf. 
Sometimes this incident is called Jesus' cleansing of the temple, but this is not a cleansing. Jesus is not reforming this place. He is condemning it. And so, not surprisingly, we read in verse 18 that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. To kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Well, the next day we see what the incident about the fig tree was all about. Perhaps you could call it Jesus' most dramatic parable. Not one that was told in words, but like the prophets of old, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel. A visual parable, a physical parable. And all the more confronting because of that. Look at verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. This is the next day. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. You see what this is about? The temple is the fig tree. It was like that fig tree. Covered in green leaves, right? Healthy and attractive and spectacular on the outside, but barren of any fruit for those who would actually see that and draw near. And Jesus' judgment is stark. Overnight, the fig tree has died, withered from the roots. Like it wasn't connected anymore to the ground. No longer, even into eternity May no one eat fruit from you again. And that message for the temple is clear. It has been corrupted. It's fruitless. And so God has forsaken it. And it will no longer or evermore be the place where people meet with God. Now, for time reasons, I can't explore as much as I would like verses 22 to 25. And I'll address that in Monday week's podcast. We've got a staff retreat where we're planning this week, so there won't be one coming out tomorrow, but the following week. But Jesus answers Peter's observation about the fig tree, notice by giving him a lesson about trusting God in prayer. See, when the first temple was commissioned by Solomon in 1 Kings 8, again, I'd encourage you to go back and read that, Solomon prays that God would hear the prayers of all who pray towards that temple that he would answer them and that he would forgive them. And that is why even now, 2,000 years after the temple's destruction, the holiest place in Judaism is still the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, all that's left of Solomon's, of um, Herod's temple. And even today, Orthodox Jews pray towards that temple. The temple may be doomed like the fig tree, But that does not mean that God's people have no place to pray or no place to turn to, to seek his blessing and peace. In fact, they have more reason to have faith in God and confidence as they pray. There is no need to look to the temple to be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people now that the Lord himself has come. Now, there's a lot in these verses but there is a simple message for us. The king has come and that king has promised to return whether we are ready or not. 
Revelation 22, Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The thing we've got to grasp in our self-absorbed worlds is that Jesus doesn't need to make himself ready for us. We need to make ourselves ready for him. Look, it's one thing to be like that crowd and, and sing praises about the greatness of the Lord's salvation and the glory of his kingdom. You know, some in that crowd were calling out crucify him a week later. And no doubt some in that crowd were part of the thousands who turned to Christ after the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the gospel to them. It's one thing to be like the crowd and and sing praises for a moment. But true faith, true discipleship bears fruit. It's one of the reasons why our, our, our mission as a church is to glorify God by making fruitful disciples of Christ in ever-increasing numbers. The word's there for a reason. And we've seen Jesus' judgment on empty religion. Worship that is mere expedience or heartless habit having the appearance of faith, but not actually, when push comes to shove, trusting God. Of religion that stopped welcoming and honouring Christ and sees itself as the end. And by its very fruitlessness, does even worse, forms a barrier between God and those who might otherwise enjoy his grace and blessing. This kind of religion And those who practice it have no future in the kingdom of God. They are outside. But we've also seen today what true readiness looks like. It's the readiness of Bartimaeus. It's the readiness that calls out to Jesus. It's the readiness that's not ashamed to proclaim him Christ It's a readiness that's not too proud to seek his mercy. It's a readiness that is trusting enough to ask for his salvation and then, having received it, to follow him all our days. These are the sons and daughters of honour and theirs is the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace to us in Jesus and we ask one thing. We ask that each of us here, each of us watching, might respond to you rightly and give you the honour that you deserved and so enjoy your kingdom forever. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.